You know, when it's Easter Sunday, it's a big day. You try to cover all the details and just be ready so that when you step up right here, you are ready to go. Can I have my Bible? I think I left it down there. Uh, I think Karen's holding it, actually. Yeah. Great. Thank you, family. Yeah, all right. Slick as can be. I was talking to somebody a couple days ago. They are, they're not from Knoxville, but they were at a local business doing work um, at, the, at the local business, and we ended up talking 15 minutes mostly about what was happening at that that business, but evidently they recognized me from some setting. I don't know, it could be a wedding, a funeral, or a church or something. They, they recognized I was a pastor. Oh, you got a big weekend for you, they said a couple times. And then as they were leaving, they said, uh, hey, I really appreciate what you do. Knock them dead Sunday. And I was like, knock them dead Sunday. Is that like the Easter thing to say? I'd say it was not quite, quite right to me. I was trying to even figure out, like, where did knock them dead even ever come from, and I didn't Google it, and I'm sure some of you are already starting to Google it because that's how you are, but uh, I feel like it's more like on Easter you're supposed to knock some life into people, right? And the Bible, uh, it can be misunderstood because some people will think that, well, we would, we would want to go to the Bible or we'd want to go to the church to have like a, like a little bit help with our life, a little self-improvement kind of thing. Like, you know, get some good exercise, eat right, get a little religion or spirituality or whatever you want to eat. And it brings balance. It brings help to your life. But the Bible actually says it's more than that. I mean, I mean following Jesus can help you with your life, but that's not really what it's getting at. Similarly, the, the Bible's not just giving a message to say, here's what you need. You need a little religion, you need a little church for what happens after your life, like when you die. Like mainly you're supposed to kind of keep tabs with some of this kind of churchy, spirituality stuff so that when you die, you, you know where you're going to go or you're ready to go. I mean, the Bible does give us that picture, that answer, but that's not what, it, what Jesus is primarily about. It's not like, well, we just need a little, just a little tweak, a little help. It's, it's that we were dead without God. Our souls were dead without God. We were spiritually dead without God. And through Jesus, we get made alive. Now, there's a way in which once we get made alive by believing in Jesus, there's two operating systems going on. There's the, the sinful nature. There's the ways that we just want to be in charge and live our own way and not live God's ways, and that's kind of operating within us. And then there's the way of actually following God and following Jesus that brings life that's dependent on him and on the Spirit. Those two things are both going on at the same time. So it's not like once we come to Jesus, everything just goes perfect. But there is this sense of God came to bring life We've been talking about this as a staff, like, well, what should we do for Easter? And some of the things we were talking about, this phrase emerged, living alive. And as one of our staff members said, it's like, we can be alive, we can be breathing, we can be doing these things, but not really living. And then another staff person flipped it the other way. We can be living, we can be doing lots of stuff, we can be really busy, we can be really active, but feel dead or empty on the inside. There are really two ways of saying a similar thing. And so we, we said, how can we, how can we help people with this idea of living alive? Because it's such a theme in the Bible. And so for a number of weeks now, I have been wrestling, struggling, trying to figure out, okay, that's a good idea, but how? How do we talk about this? How do we, how do we move toward that? And I had 
This week I had someone say, you know, I'm up, I'm up in the middle of the night and I just had this and they shared like, this, maybe this is something for Easter. And somebody else said, I, mean, I, I don't want to really, you know, impose myself, but I have this keep, keep going through my mind for Easter. And so I have all these different thoughts coming to me. And on Friday, as, as the different, what different people said converged and came together, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share my personal story. I'm a little apprehensive about doing that because I really don't want this to be about me today. And because some of you have been here over years, have heard you know, at least parts of these, these stories maybe multiple times, um, but some of you haven't heard my story, and, and I don't think I've ever framed it up like I'm going to frame it up right now. I'm, I'm going to talk about two defining moments in my story, and I'm going to have a verse with each one. But before I get to those two defining moments, those two verses and two defining moments, I want to start kind of with the foundation. So there's this passage, before I get to those other two verses, it's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and it says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's by grace You've been saved by favor, by goodness, nothing deserved, nothing earned. It's by grace, through faith, through believing, through trusting in what God's done for you. It's not something we work up. It's not something we earn. Now, here's my story. Here's my foundation. I grew up going to church ever since I can remember. We actually lived across the street from the church in my first house. We just walked over. And if, if church was happening, we were there. We were at church uh, every Sunday. I bet I could count on one hand how many Sundays I missed my whole childhood of, of church. We were there every single Sunday, but not just Sundays. We were there every single Wednesday night on Advent leading up to Christmas. We were there every single Wednesday night on Lent leading up to, to, to Holy Week. And then on Holy Week, we were there on Monday, Thursday. And then we were there on Good Friday. And on Good Friday, sometimes we went to both services because there was a normal Good Friday service. And then there was the Tenebrae service. And the Tenebrae service was a service about Jesus' last words on the cross. And there were seven candles, well, 14. And after you'd read each one of his words on the cross, there'd be a meditation or a song. And then you would put out the two of the candles, until at the end it was complete darkness and everyone left in silence. And I went to that every single year. And we went to sunrise service every single year, like, I mean, that is a bad idea for celebrating Easter for a little kid or a teenager or whatever, like, yes, it's dark, let's go, woohoo, he's risen indeed. But anyway, but you, there was this sense of like, yes, this is what it's all about. And so there is something to going and keep on going over years. Now, I realize that that's, there's a way in which that could create hypocrisy or self-righteousness. There's a way that some, it feels like empty ritual for some people. But I will say, for me, even if everything wasn't sticking as I grew up, there is something about every year hearing the story, Jesus died on the cross for, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's something about being a little kid sitting in the dark Knowing like it was me that put him there. I was actually as a teenager for a few years. I had the rite of passage where I got to be the one that put it out. And I remember one time just sitting in the pastor's little study off to the to the wing and just being like, "Man, it's me that put him there." There's something about having that whole story. I'm forever grateful, and I think literally I will be forever grateful. Like in ten thousand years from now, when I'm still alive. Because I will be, like there's life after death, 
I will still be grateful to my parents for immersing me in the story of Jesus and for loving me. Now, here's what emerged out of all that. A few things. One is, by the time I graduated high school, I did believe God was supposed to be the most important thing in life. And I believed that I could turn to him at any point. I believed those things. I had it ingrained to me that this Bible, this collection of writings over years, somehow was inspired by God. It was God's word. It was what I should base my life on. I, I had that. And then, maybe mostly, because as a Lutheran boy, this is what you get. So not only did I do all those other things I mentioned every year, but in grade school, we also went through Reformation Week every year, where we, we talked about... Now, by the way, I, uh, the Catholic Church, I have great appreciation for a lot of aspects of their theology. But what we talked about back then was the Catholic Church from Europe in you know, the 1400s, 1500s that had a lot of abuses. And one of them was to say, like, you had to earn your way. You had to do enough good, otherwise you wouldn't go to, to heaven. And so Martin Luther, this monk, tried his best to do good, to be good, and he just felt like God hated him. And then he discovered what the Bible said about it's by grace you've been saved. And he, he, it's through faith, it's through confidence in Jesus. And so one of the things that I took with me is that it's nothing I have to earn. It's not about good works. That's where I was when I graduated in high school. Now, let's go to the, these two defining moments. And the first verse that I want to talk about is from Romans. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 11. It says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, when I went to, when I grew up, I was known as Andy. Um, my friends called me Schmidt or Schmitty, you know, in high school or whatever, but I, I went by Andy. That's what everyone called me, Andy. When I went to, to Central College, I didn't know anyone in the state of Iowa except the basketball coach. And my buddies and I, that summer before, were like, you could totally reinvent yourself. Like, nobody knows you. Like, you could wear all black all the time and never say anything. Or you could, like, all these different ideas of, like, what could you do to be, like, really a weird, weird person? I didn't go that far, but I did start, introduce myself to everyone as Drew. I'm Drew. So my parents come down five weeks later at Parents' Weekend, Drew, Drew, Drew. They're, what, what's going on? Jack Walford, the basketball coach, I ran into the hall once before the season had started. He said, I keep hearing this Drew, Drew this, Drew that. I said, we don't have a Drew on the team. I said, eh, coach, I kind of just changed my name. He said, just walk away. Anyway, so I had changed my name. Now, here's the deal. When I went to Central College, obviously, if the only person I knew in the state was the basketball coach, one of the reasons I went to Central College was to play basketball. Another thing I had on my mind when I went to Central College is that sort of expected of me or I expected of myself, I was going to be successful. I was going to make a lot of money. So part of me being at Central was to, to get ready to make a lot of money, maybe even do something important. Like by the time I was there a year, I thought maybe I'll run for state office someday or something. Like I had that feeling of I'm supposed to do something important. But along with feeling like I needed to achieve at a high level, I also wanted people to like me. So I tried to be funny. I mean, sometimes I succeeded, but I tried to be funny a lot. Uh, there was this, this uh, a neighbor of Camille's, and this guy who went, went to Central as a freshman the same year as me, but then transferred to Iowa State. Her, that's where Camille's neighbor went. 
And when she, this is a couple years later, and she met him and she said, oh, you went to Central College? Do you know Drew Schmidt? And he said, Drew Schmidt? There's nothing that guy wouldn't do. Now, that is not actually true. But I was not easily embarrassed. And if something over the top could make people laugh, I, I just enjoyed that. So I, I was trying to make people laugh, and I, I wanted girls to like me. Let's just be honest, that was a big motivator back then. So you got like trying to achieve basketball, trying to achieve, you know, make money, get good grades, get ready for that, and then be really funny so everybody likes you, and then uh, uh, girls. Now, right? now, what I did not know was operating at the time, at least I wasn't very in touch with it, is that I had a pretty significant fear of failure and fear of rejection. And a lot of what was driving me is this being afraid of people not liking me, of not meeting expectations, of letting people down. It just drove me. So when I drove up to a, a school to a girl from high school that I really, really liked and who had, was no longer dating her boyfriend, and so I was like, yes, finally, and I got there, and then I spent the evening with her and her new boyfriend, I drove back home. It's rejection. And, you know, what I hadn't really calculated very well is that if you're the best basketball player on your high school team and you go to play college basketball, you're going to get together with a bunch of the best basketball players on their high school teams. And so when 19 other freshmen go out, not to mention the sophomores, juniors, and seniors, and you're sitting on the bench not playing, on JV, your freshman year, and then you drive back home, and what is the one question everybody's going to ask you when you drive back home? How's basketball going? And you feel like a failure. And so when you stop feeling good about yourself, it's easy to stop doing good things or to start doing things that aren't good. To numb out, to feel accepted by someone, to... I mean, I don't think, as an 18, 19-year-old, that's what was going through my mind, but I think that's what was playing out. Just wasn't good enough. Now, there are many parts of my story, many influences that I'm going to leave out, but there's this one guy named Jason. Jason was a senior when I was a freshman. He seemed crazy and funny and just full of life. And I watch him do different things. I think, this guy's hilarious, and I really want to get to know him. And then I found out he, that a year or two earlier, he had become like a really serious Christian. Like, he was all about Jesus, which I thought was kind of cool. Like, I didn't really know very many cool people who also were serious about Jesus. That seemed like a contradiction in terms in some ways for me. So anyway, I only had a few conversations with Jason when, during that, my freshman year before he graduated. But one of those is that I accidentally, well, I called one of his friends who wasn't there, and he answered the phone. And this is when I had made mistakes. I had screwed up. I had been feeling really low in life. I'd probably quit the basketball team for a little while. I mean, I was down. I hadn't been going to church or anything. And Jason just said, do you want to go to church with me? And I said, yeah. So I went to church. There's a new pastor there. He'd only been there for a year or so, Kevin Corver. And I listened to him, and something started to happen in this dead 18, 19-year-old who's full of fear, failure, rejection. 
And a few months later, right before graduation, I found myself, again, this is strange, because I only talked to him a few times, but I found myself sitting in a room with Jason. And Jason said, hey, I hear you're dating so-and-so. Why do you like her? And I want to impress Jason. Jason, Christianity is important to him. I said, well, she's not a, she's not a party girl. He said, oh, are you a party guy? Mm, time to change the subject. So uh, my response was, well, what about you, Jason? You know, who are you interested in? And he said, I've, I've really stopped dating. Because um, I find that dating girls causes me to sin more. So, yeah, but... And that haunted me for the summer. Well, I realized someone who had known God his whole life, who believed the Bible was important, was that sin didn't make much of a difference to me. Like, don't be really bad, you know, be a pretty good person, but, I mean, to actually try not to sin, to actually just try to do what God says, really, fully, count yourselves dead to sin. Don't live for sin. Don't let sin control you. Don't let sin be in charge. You don't let sin motivate you. Count yourself dead to sin instead of make yourself alive to God. Live for God. Live God's ways. This is a huge contrast. And for a year, I just wrestled over this as I tried to keep one foot in both places. Like, I'm going to live all these things I thought I got to be successful. I got to be good. I got to do this. And I also want to follow God. And it just stretched out until finally I went to a camp, a Christian camp that I got dragged to, and I surrendered my life to God. I said, I'm going to live for you. And I knew that meant being a pastor, which who wants to be a pastor? I certainly, I knew I was supposed to be a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. Nobody wants to hang out with a pastor. That's true. Anyway, uh, but I was like, no, you get it all. You get it all, and to a degree that I had never experienced before, I tried to live for God. I was dead to sin, alive to God. Around that same time, within a few weeks of that probably, there's a senior in high school, and she went to a similar kind of camp, and she gave her life to God. And I would meet her Shortly, But here's the last verse I wanted to talk about as I talk about a second defining moment. And it's Galatians 2. I'll just read it from here. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, I was really serious about living my faith after that. And so I, I played basketball, and eventually I actually like played basketball. Like I was a captain and starter my senior year, but even my junior year when I might sit on the bench for a whole game, I was disappointed by that, but I was no longer debilitated by that because my identity wasn't like I'm a basketball player. My identity is I'm trying to live for Jesus. I want people to know Jesus. And so, you know, I wasn't chasing girls around anymore I mean, partly that's because I met the girl I liked more than I've ever liked anyone else before, and she liked me, or at least she married me. I hope she kind of likes me still. Anyway, so there was just some of the things that I, that I struggled with and drawn to, I wasn't struggling with or drawn to as much. 
And there's a difference. I got hired by this Kevin Corver guy who I'd only talked to four times in my life, but he had this, like, I just had an impression from the Holy Spirit that you should come here. I don't know what that means, but I'd like to work there. That's a good idea. So I started what started as a two-year internship. I ended up working there for 13 years. And in the midst of that, seven, eight years into it, the staff leadership team, six of us, went to a conference in Florida on healing prayer, Jacksonville, Florida. And I, I heard stories about things that were happening, like God you know, doing things that are in here, but I never really saw out here. And then not only did I hear story, them tell stories about it, I started to see it happening in the room I was in, with people I was in, healing I was having, things were happening, not just to the people. There were things happening to me where it's like, God's alive. He's, he's real. He's alive. These are, this is awesome. And on the very last night, there was a ministry time. They're playing quietly. There's a ministry time so you can get prayer, you can sit, you can reflect, you can worship along. There's this wide open night. This is like, I don't know, 50 to 100 people there. And I am struggling. So what had been happening to me is that I was less fun, and that's to be expected in some ways because I was probably a little too much fun at one hand, and there's natural maturing, but there was something about me just being heavier, feeling heavier. And that had been happening for a while. So I felt just struggling with something. I didn't know what it was. And Suzanne Vogel, who is the interim pastor here at Celebrate, before I came to work here, well, before she was interim pastor, we both worked at Third together, so she was there, and she came over, and she said to me, I keep hearing the word legalism. Now, before I tell you what happened, I just want to say, like, legalism doesn't make any sense to me. Like, legalism? I'm not, I'm not legal. Like, I got my Lutheran kind of thing immersed in me. Like, we are saved by grace. There's no part of me that thinks, like, I have to earn my way to get to heaven and honestly, I'm not like a super strict, everything's got to be by the book kind of guy. So I wouldn't think that legalism would make sense as the word. But here's what was happening. It went from, I need people to like me. I don't want to fa fail. I don't want to be rejected. And so I got to be good at sports or I got to make a lot of money or I got to be funny. I got to impress people. All of that got shifted over to, I don't want to fail. I don't want to be rejected. I want people to like me. So I got to be a really good pastor. So I got to give good messages. So I got to be spiritual. And I know I'm really not as spiritual or as wise as I think I'm supposed to be or people expect me to be. And so at some point, now again, I wouldn't think I knew this. This is reflection afterwards. I, like, I'm going to get exposed that I'm a fraud. I'm not really what I need to be. And so that fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of people not liking me, it was just manifesting itself in a different way, in a good way, in a pretty way. So she leans over and says, I keep hearing the word legalism. And you guys are thinking, this is weird. I'm just telling you this is what happened. She said legalism, and I went, <laughs> And just felt things coming out of me, but didn't see anything physically coming out of me. I have come to know that what that means is an evil spirit, probably a religious spirit, 
was leaving me. So it's not that I would ever be possessed by a demon or anything because I have Jesus. That just can't happen when you have Jesus. But what can happen is when you agree enough with the lie, you're never going to be good enough. You are never going to be good enough. You are never going to be good enough. You did it again. You made them feel bad. You screwed up again. You are never going to be good enough. When you live with that lie so much that it just becomes part of you, you open yourself for the accuser, for some entity of evil to have just a part of your life. And I had been studying Galatians because I was going to give a sermon series on Galatians and Galatians is all about legalism. It's about people who accepted Jesus and saw things of the Spirit and then they were like, do we have to do this and this and this? And then they started getting to the rules. And evidently, that thing had been losing power in, in my life. And when legalism came out, that thing of you'll never be good enough came out. Now, I'll have the vulnerability my whole life about that, but something changed there. I felt light. I felt airy. I felt like this huge burden. I just felt loved. Like I've never felt loved before. I just felt love pouring into me. I was crying from, the, from my toes, but it was a happy cry. It was the opposite of you'll never be good enough. It was just this, I love you. And a few minutes after that, I went over to Kevin Corver and he gave me a big hug. And as I'm weeping into his shoulder, he said, I think we should call you Andrew. You know the name my mom and dad actually gave me. I think we should call you Andrew. Andrew was a lover of souls. He's talking about the Andrew from the Bible, the disciple of Jesus. Andrew was a lover of souls. When I'm alive to God, that's who I am. I'm going to have the worship team come up. I think there are two ways that instead of living alive, living with God's life flowing through me, I can be more dead. And one of them is just feeling like sin's no big deal. Like, well, all that's, that matters. I mean, as long as I believe, it mat that matters afterwards. Because sin tends to not make me alive to God. I think more than that, more than count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I wonder if there's anyone else who has that thing that says, you'll never be good enough. You will never be good enough. That is such a larger voice in your mind and your heart then Jesus is good enough. And he's the lover of your soul. 
He's the lover of your soul. He is good enough, and he is not saying the opposite. He is the lover of your soul. Count yourself dead to whatever gets in the way of being alive to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. We remember today you didn't have to come for us, Jesus. That you didn't feel obligated to, frustrated in doing so. You wanted to. It's your deep love for us. You are good enough. You are more than enough. I pray today as we Sing this last song together. You would come in and minister to the parts of us that we might not even be very aware of in our heads, but are operating underneath the surface. We want to say yes to you, Jesus. Yes to your love. Yes to your goodness. Pray that you would take away shame in the name of Jesus because of what you did on the cross, Jesus. Because of the life that you give us. All the things that you want to do, all the things that you would pour in, we are trying to position our hearts to say yes. Yes. You can have our whole life. We want you in all of our life. You're the lover of our soul. And we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.